It's helping us to understand the word of the Lord. So, the imitation of Christ, the lesson, big idea, or the series, big idea, I should probably say, is that Jesus Christ is our example, and he has given us the power to live like him. Jesus Christ is our example, and he has given us the power to live like him or to imitate him. So that's why we will talk about the imitation of Christ, because we are supposed to be imitating Christ. Anybody know that we're supposed to be imitating Christ? That's a tall order. That's a tall order. And sometimes we feel like it's not achievable, but I'm I'm always ready to say to myself, and I will tell you that Jesus wouldn't ask you to do something that you could not do. Always remember that. And because you may not have put the right amount of effort into it and it's not getting done, did not mean it can't be done. It just means we need to put a little bit more effort into what Jesus say we should do or we must do. And so we'll talk about that a little bit tonight um, as we're imitating Christ. His role must be our role as well. So if we're imitating him, whatever he's doing, we should be doing. Whatever he has done, we should be doing. So let's get into the scripture focus tonight. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, and Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 7. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 say, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus, the scriptures tell us that Jesus didn't come to sit in church and have people minister to him. That's what that means. Jesus didn't come to take a seat and have people minister to him, but he came to stand and minister to people. Hmm. Yeah. That's what he came. That's what this text is saying. It's saying that he didn't come to be ministered unto. He didn't come to say minister unto me. But to minister and give his life a ransom. I had a conversation with someone last week. And the conversation went like this. The person said to me, you know, it's amazing how people could be living in sin and doing wrong. And those that are not living in sin and doing right seem to get less attention than the people that are living in sin. Look like almost like the person is saying that we seem to fall all over people that's living in sin like they're doing right. And the ones that's doing right, we're not doing that with. And because the Lord has given me wisdom, and I always tell him, bring back to my memory, Lord, scriptures. I was able to jump on a scripture text. I think it was Matthew 9, 22. I says, uh, let me tell you this. The Bible says, Jesus came not for them that are well, but he came for those that are sick. And you're telling me you are well. So that's why you're not getting a whole lot of attention because you're well. 
And when you're well in the hospital, they send you home. <laughs> they didn't know who they was messing with. I said, so you're well. So they're taking care of the one that's sick. Well, if we want to use that for our own benefit tonight, if we are well, we're supposed to be ministering, not being ministered unto. If we're well, eh? so we're well, we're supposed to be doing, we're supposed to be doing something to help others. And so that is something very important to point out. If you consider yourself doing okay in Christ. Doesn't mean you are the smartest person in scripture. Doesn't mean you know all the scripture. It just means you're doing well for where you are in Christ. It might be your first year living for God, but if you feel like you're following the teachings and you're doing what you're supposed, you're well. So when you're well, you're supposed to be able to give, give back because you're well. We're going to imitate Christ. Philippians 2, 5 and 7 says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Who is equal with God? Can anybody tell me who is equal with God? Okay, so when it says equal, it's just talking about God and Christ is the same, because nobody's equal with God. So when he says, uh, you know, when Christ thought it not robbery to be, with, be equal to God, it means Christ is God. So, He's his own equal. There's nobody else equal to him. And it says in verse 7, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Can I tell you, our world is desperately in need of people that will take on the form of a servant. If we will look for opportunity to serve, we will be less disappointed about the things we experience. If we look for opportunity to serve, our expectation of people will be different. <laughs> if, my, if, if my deal and my motivation is I am going to serve you, then my whole expectation is different. I'm serving you. I'm not expecting for you to do something for me so when you don't do it, I get upset. Because <laughs> usually that's why we get upset with people because we have a certain expectation of them and they didn't meet that expectation. And so we're like in our minds, even when we don't say it, I can't believe this. <laughs> but it's because of the expectation. But if you decide that I'm the servant here and I'm just going to go ahead and serve, I'm not going to worry about it. Man, you get your feelings hurt a whole lot less. And so we're talking about his role being our role. And so the first role we're going to discuss tonight about Jesus is the role of a servant. In John chapter 13, that's the, uh, the text that talked about Jesus washing his disciples' feet. That is a very powerful and important text that we all should know about. So it's talking about Jesus washing his disciples' feet. One of the things that I always remember about that text is when Jesus now decide that I'm going to wash your feet, Peter. Peter says, oh, no, Lord. And I, man, maybe I always talk about this because I really, really can identify with it. So Jesus getting ready to get down to wash Peter's feet. And Peter's like, oh, are you kidding me? No, you can't wash my feet. Because he already knew who he was. 
So Peter knew Jesus was the master. And he's like, you're almighty God. You're not going to be washing my feet. And Jesus said to Peter, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you can't have any part of me. Peter said, oh, that's the way it works. Wash all of me in my head, my hands, everything, Jesus. Because I didn't know that's what you were saying. So Jesus was just outstanding. And so his role as a servant is, is, is clearly demonstrated in John chapter 13 about him washing his disciples' feet. So John chapter 13 allows us to peer into one of the most significant days in the life of Jesus. He spent his last week in Jerusalem before the greatest act of love ever would be witnessed forever alter history. So after spending time around the temple and facing the ridicule of the religious leaders who were trying to ensnare him, the moment arrived for Jesus to impart his last immediate investment into the 12 disciples. Now, I'll get in. Uh, I'm going to get into that investment in the 12 disciples in a little bit. That, that's going to be a side lesson from this lesson. But this was his final role of showing his disciples certain things. He chose to eat his last supper observing Passover with his 12 flawed, somebody say flawed, chosen men. I don't know why we're looking for people that are not flawed. And so I love it. I was talking to somebody that came to church Sunday and I was talking to them about giving their life to God and like, you know, traditional Times people like to say, well, you know, I'm just trying to get myself together before I give my life to God. And that's always funny because we know nobody can get themselves together and that's why we need Jesus. So if, if, if you're trying to get yourself together, the quickest way to do that is to give your life to God. Then you can't get yourself together any quicker than that. So if you're trying to figure out, you might go take a, a class at the, at the college or you might go to a certain kind of um, um, seminar or something and that will help you. I'm telling you, there are some geniuses that are just idiots. There are some people that are rich that are just idiots. So it's not the seminar. It's not the money that make you get yourself together. It's the principles and the teachings that Jesus Christ taught us. That's what will get our life in order. It's the principles of what the, Jesus Christ taught us that gets our life together. Not anything else. Not anything else. As they climbed the stairs in the stillness of the evening to convene in an upper room, Jesus was the only one who fully knew what that night would entail. He had spent three years full of miraculous moments with his team of men. It would be the last night this group of men would convene together. They had left family, occupation, and homeland to follow their master. And as they sat down to fellowship and eat, the master proved to be a servant. Moments after his disciples were trying to figure out who was the greatest among the disciples, the king of kings took off his garment, adorned himself with an unseemly towel. As the spirit of pride among the disciples dissipate in the room, Jesus lowered his posture with a basin of water and washed the feet of his disciples. Jesus, the sovereign king, took the place of a servant 
with a compelling love, Jesus cleansed unclean feet, even the feet of the one he knew would soon betray him. So let's talk about that for a second. So here we are. Jesus' last really time that he was going to spend with his 12 disciples. And so this is his final time that he was going to spend his last time and he had dinner with them. And then after he had dinner with them, he washed their feet. So eating and washing feet is, is good stuff. Yeah. It's okay if we eat and wash feet. I, I like how Jesus always had food and stuff. Man, we thank God for that, right? Like food was a big part of, you know, stuff. When he was here, oh, food was always involved. Yeah, right? So we're okay there. We, we can dig that. But after he got done eating, he, he, he stooped and began to wash feet. It's amazing that when he started doing that, that was right before the disciples asked him, who was the greatest in the kingdom? So while they were jockeying to find out of the 12 of them, who was going to be number one and number two, and they're jockeying, and Jesus kind of ignored them and just started showing them who was going to be the greatest. Now, I don't know what it is that we can't connect with to understand that the greatest among us is always the greatest servant. I don't know why, because if we know that, why we don't have more people serving in church? If Jesus said the greatest among you would be those that are the greatest servant among you, not those that have the greatest position, but those that will serve the most, that's who is the greatest. Why don't we have more servants? That's something to think about, because that's how. Remember now, we have to remember this. This game is is his. I do not say game just for lack of better word, not because this is a game. I'm saying what we're living, how we're living. He is the shot caller. And somehow I think that we tell ourselves that, you know, I can live this way and Jesus will be OK with it because he's loving because I'm not sure why we don't, we get clear instruction from the word of God about what Jesus says. And somehow we sidestep it and don't realize, but that's what he said. So he says the greatest among us is the ones that's our, that, that, that are the ones that say, that serve the most. So if that's true, why don't we have more servants in the church? And don't tell me anything because I know we like to be considered great. So nobody's going to tell me tonight and say, well, that's, that's, that's because, you know, we're not into being great. Yeah, okay. Everybody wants to be recognized as being somebody. The disciples had that issue. And they were, they were men of God that's living and walking with the king. And they had the issue in wanting to be recognized as great. So I'm sure tonight many of us want to be recognized as great. But I'm telling you what the answer is. And the answer is start serving. So Jesus, he served them. And here's the big one. He even served the one that he knew was going to betray him the same way he served the other ones that were not going to betray him. Can we talk about that? 
Can we talk about that? Because we only feel good serving people that are submissive and some, you know, people that will listen to what we say. But, but what happened to when people start acting up and they don't want to listen to you? Will you still treat them the same way like you treat everybody else? We're supposed to be imitating Christ. And so we can't pick and choose who we are going to serve this way and that way. We're supposed to serve everybody the same way. And so Jesus, after he showed them the great act of humility, he challenges disciples to follow his actions into the future. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done. John chapter 13 verse 14 through 15. His role was now to become the disciples role. His role, Jesus' role, is supposed to be the disciples' role, which was passed down to us will become our role. And so whatever he has done, we need to imitate it. That's his role as a servant. The next role we'll talk about is his role as a loving father. His role as a loving father. There is no love like the father's love. Studies have shown the ailing effects of a child when a natural father is not properly fulfilling his role in a child's life. According to the United States Census Bureau, 24 million children live in a home without a biological father. However, Psalms chapter 27 verse 10 declares, When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. God is not a distant father, but engaged and involved in our lives by the power of his love. Jesus proved that love in an action by how he lived his life and ultimately laid it down for our benefit. There is no greater love than what Jesus has demonstrated. So he is our father, but he has demonstrated what a father's love should be all about. And in so doing, we need to imitate that. We need to imitate the love that he showed us as a father. We need to show that same love to others. When we look at the different kind of loves, we have um, in, in the Greek language described love in many different ways. And as you know, the most of the New Testament was written um, in Greek. And so the Greek language uh, will tell you a little bit about the different types of love. And I'm going to go through them really quick and let you know what the different types of loves are. And so the first one they have listed is Eros, E-R-O-S. And what kind of love is Eros? Is a, it is a love that we should say uh, represent love as one of desire and strong attraction. So Eros is usually love, probably husband, wife, that kind of love, love attraction. That, that's what Eros is supposed to be. Unfortunately, in our current society and media surge, love has been diluted to an appetite deal. Young people across America are being fed a side of love that was designed by God, but perverted and 
regulated to physical attraction. I don't want to get into that. Because love is supposed to start emotionally, emotional, mental connection. That, that, that's, that's, what, that, that's what you're supposed to start with. And so somehow we perverted and diluted where people are just looking at people from a physicality and that's what they're thinking love is. But that was never God's intention for love for a man and a woman that are married. That, that wasn't his intention, but we have perverted it. And so that's what we have now. Love is more than impulsive emotion. It is commitment. The word eros does not appear um, in the original New Test in the original language in the New Testament, but is listed in the Old Testament. And so, when we talk about love, eros between husband and wife, we are talking about real love for one another and not just sexual attraction. The other one is. Storge, storge, the love is, um, that, that kind of love represent an aspect of, uh, when one express, uh, love for family members, family members. So, uh, brothers and sisters, you know, just family members, nieces, nephews, when you love your family, that's the love, it's spelled S-T-O-R-G-E. And so that's the kind of love between family members. The other love, is phylos, and this is the love that represents conditional convenience. Now, this is not love at all, but they just put it in there so we understand. When you're loving out of conditional convenience, which is the love here described as um, phylos, P-H-I-L-O-S, now you are just saying, well, if you do, I will do. It's a love of convenience and condition. If you treat me kind then and, and do good deeds, then I'll treat you kind and good deeds. But if you don't, then I won't. I think that's what our world think today is love. Our world knows sexual attraction is not love. I know they got that. Uh, they, they understand the brother and sister love. But I think most of our love in this day and age is phylos. We will love as long as, you know, you love me back. If, if I, if, <laughs> nowadays, I think the 30 year olds do it too, them that are in their 30s. I don't know. Um, my generation is probably the last generation that did this. Like, my generation, when we, when we take a lady out, we expected to treat her. My generation. And older. We, we didn't take you out talking about, well, I hope she have her own money. <laughs> them in the 30s and the 20s and lower, that's how they roll. I hope she have her own money. I'm just telling you. You've been on a date, Pascal, where they tell you, I hope you had your own money? No. Okay, all right. I'm just, saying. I'm just saying, for the most part, that's how they do nowadays. I'm telling you. I hope she have her own money. But my generation, we, we believed in, mind you, tell the truth. You know that's how some of them roll, right? I knew you would tell me that. I'm telling you. Yeah, they, they, you got to bring your own money. Hey, girl, how about we go to Bahamas? But you got to pay your way. I'm telling you, that's how they do now. That's unheard of to me. I just knew growing up. Listen, you know, they, we used to call it whining and dining. I don't know what they call it now. I mean, we don't whine anymore, so I can't, you know, can't say whine. But, but, but back in the day when we say whining and dining, it meant that I was going to take care of everything. That's what we do. 
Nowadays, these people, man, they want to go to Bahamas and act like you're their girlfriend, but they don't want to pay Bahamas money. I don't know about it. I, our world is just gone astray. And I'm just like, how do we get here? Where dude want to take you to Bahamas, but he doesn't want to pay. Dude, come on, man. Like you want something and you don't want to invest anything. I don't know where they get it from. The other love that we're going to talk about is agape. And that's the one we know Jesus is all about. Agape love is rooted in behavior and choice. Not a love based on feelings. So agape love is not based on feelings. The essence of Jesus' love for humanity is found in 1 Corinthians the chapter 13, which we know that love chapter, love is patient, love is kind. It is not puffed up or arrogant. It lays down pride and does not seek its own. His love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. It bear all things and endure all things. Love never fails. Can I tell you this? I just realized something in scripture. I might have said it to you Sunday, but it just, it just, just kept ringing in me. I always said, if I love you, I can never not love you anymore because that's just my understanding of love. God loves us. He will never, ever not love us. But then I started looking at it and realized that, you know what? If you die, you stop loving. That's standard, right? You, 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 you're not here. You. But here is the trick. I said, man, this is too deep. Listen to this. The only way you can really truly love somebody is how God teaches we're supposed to love. So you can't love somebody in your natural ability with your understanding in your mind, with what you've seen and copied. That's not love. That might be the one we just, the philos, oh, you do and I do. That's probably what we practice when we say love. Or it might, could be just the sibling things, I'm supposed to treat my siblings right. Those are the love that we might practice, Okay. But those are not love. Those are just things we do and just label it love. But if we love somebody for real, we can only do it by the definition that God considers to be love. Unconditional. A choice you make. But you can only do that if you become godly. When you become godly, it means you're spiritual. So what it really comes down to is, you can only love people, truly love them, and don't get offended because, you know, a lot of times people say, well, you're telling me my grandmom and grandpa don't love each other. They've been living together for, they've been married for 50 years, 60 years. They love each other. I'm not touching that. I'm just going by the Bible and I know that the only love that is really love is the one that Jesus described to us. And it is unconditional and you're supposed to be willing to sacrifice your life. And so it is a spiritual thing. It's not a natural thing. You can't love the way God say love on a natural basis. So the only way to love like Jesus say is to be spiritual. But when you are spiritual, you can love people the way you God said. But if you die spiritually, that love will die. That's scary. No, it's, it's the fact. Because, because God do the natural and the spiritual all the time. So the natural is, when I leave this earth, I can't love my kids anymore. I can't love my wife anymore. I can't love y'all anymore. I'm no longer here. I can't love you. So if that's true naturally, it's true spiritually. 
So you will be able to love people when you're spiritually in tune and in line with the Lord. But once you stop being spiritual, then you're not loving that person like you loved them when you were spiritual. That's a fact right there. That's tough. Tough pill to swallow. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. 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 Here, here, here is what I say. There are people that smoke cigarette. They get cancer. They know they have cancer. They keep smoking a cigarette till they die. They had a good relationship with that cigarette. I think... People just are compatible. And the longer you stay with each other, the more your life become systematic, routine. We are used to one another. We know what each other like. It, it's my life now. I've done something to cause my life and you have done something to cause your life to be our life. And so we just know how to get along. We know how each other think. We know how each other operate. And so we can be together for at the end of time because we've learned each other so well and we are compatible. Compatible. We know how to coexist together. We know each other likes and we complement one another. That don't mean we love each other. As a matter of fact, back to that, you know, wanting something from someone because, you know, you saying, okay, you do this and I'll do this. And, you know, you don't say it out loud, but it's kind of, we experience that a lot where, you know, guess what? So, for instance, you know, we have this, I remember just being a kid, you know, people that are living together, married. I remember a kid, the husband brought money home and the wife cooked. It, did, did they love one another or did that thing just work really good right she knew how to cook really well he knew how to work really hard and bring the money in did, do they love each other or is just a system that worked really well for them so I, I i i will tell you my answer is that that a lot of people stay together because they developed a system that worked for them they've developed something that worked for both of them what both of them need that other person provided so you provide what i need i provide what you need it don't mean i love you and you love me it just means we were providing for each other and so sometimes people say oh they've been together 70 years they loved each other all right And 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 natural tendency of people is to be appreciative if somebody's been good to you. You're you're almost just like Beelzebub. Let me be nice. It's still the same thing. But 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 you're like Beelzebub when somebody is nice to you and you can't just give back that niceness to them. That's terrible. That's really bad. You know, somebody being nice to you and you can't be nice back to them. That's that's horrible. So to me, I just think that's standard. You know, like if we're together and I do something, you'll just automatically do something nice because it's just normal human being decency. Don't mean we love each other, it means normal decency. But when we do it like Jesus do, which is now what Jesus is talking about, what he had demonstrated is this. I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure whatever you will need whatever makes you happy. However, I can make your day better. I'm going to go to the fullest extent to do that. 
My life is to make sure you're good. That's, that, that, that's the level that Jesus is on. Because the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave. And all we keep on understanding from this is God was sitting on his throne in heaven where there's no sorrow, no more pain, no more tears. He was just, everything was just glorious. And because he loved us, when we got messed up, he says, oh, Lord, my children, I got to go take care of them. And he didn't, he didn't, he wasn't trying to calculate what he should or couldn't do. He didn't calculate, well, this is as far as I'm going to go or, well, they're ungrateful, so I'm only going to do this. He never calculated what he, he just knew whatever it takes. That's the difference with the God love and our love. God love is whatever it takes. We are, this is as far as I'm going to go. So anytime, any, anybody you have in your life that you say you love, but you have the line, this is as far as, okay, just know that that's not what God's talking about. That's what you're talking about. This is as far as I'm going to go. I'm not doing more than this. All right. <laughs> so we talked about the love. Now let's talk finally about the next role that God demonstrated. First role he demonstrates was being a servant. The second role he demonstrates was being loving. The third role he demonstrates or that we're going to get into is humility. His role demonstrating humility. There's a scripture that says, be clothed with humility. Our daily adornment should be to wear the garment of humility, just as Jesus did. Humility assumes the right attitude before God. I will even start right here and tell you, sometimes that's why some of us don't get our prayers answered. You can't go to God any kind of way. In the natural, try going before a king any kind of way. Again, you know, it's not hard to figure out what God is all about. In the natural, you try to go see King Jaffe Jaffer. Any kind of way you want, and you will not be able to go see the king. You have to present yourself a certain way to see the king. And so if we go in, in our prayer, it's not about the attire that we're wearing to go and pray. It's about the attitude that we are demonstrating when we go to pray to God. And so if your attitude is not of humility, guess what? God knows it because he a mind reader. He knows your thoughts are far off. So when you go to God with any kind of issue in you, you will not get your prayers answered. Is, that's why it's so important that part of how you go to God is praise and thanksgiving. Then repentance. See, that, those are the three things that you must do to approach God. Praise, thanksgiving, and repentance. If you go to God that way, that will assure that you will have a right attitude which is humble before him. But if you go without those things, chances could be you will find yourself going to God with a certain kind of demeanor that is not acceptable to God. And if King Jaffe Joffer can say unacceptable, you can't come into my throne room like that, then God certainly can say that. Humility is very important. The first example of God humbling himself was when he came to this earth. Born in a stable, not a palace. So when Jesus came into this world as a, as, as a human being, when, 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 he, when he came in, he could have been born in a palace. 
and he was born in a stable. What does the example of Christ's humility personally mean to our life? How can we clearly make this known to others? Philippians 2, 5 and 7, we read that earlier, tells us, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. You think any rich, uh, well-off person want to be a servant? They hire servants. They pay servants. And so when you are rich and well-off, you don't do the serving. You pay for people to serve you. Now, the Bible says, Jesus, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. So he owns everything, but he's going to serve. You see the difference between his teaching and how we see our world operate? And we keep on wondering why the world is the way it is. Because we're practicing what we want and we're not doing what he taught. That, that's why the world is messed up. We're practicing what we want and we're not doing what he taught. And so we're looking around saying, okay, well, if I'm the one with the money, then I'm the shot caller. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one with the money. I own everything, but I'm going to serve. That's straight humility. Remember, our money, our wealth make us puffed up and make us look down on other people. And Jesus didn't allow that to happen. He didn't look down on other people. He says, you know what? I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to serve. And even though I'm the one that is responsible for life, I'm the one that owns everything. I'm the one that possess everything. I am still going to serve and I'm not going to look down. That, that, that takes away all manner of pride. What servant you know have pride? Start going, I'm not talking about people that's getting paid big money to do stuff these days. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about a servant, a real servant. What servant you think have pride? Most servants don't even look up, look you in the eye. Because they're realizing I'm just the servant around here and I take instructions and orders and do what I'm told. So they don't even look up. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay. And they're gone. And so Jesus wanted us to understand humility. And the best way to be humble, oh, I just got my answer from the question I asked you earlier. I just asked you why you think, if Jesus said the greatest among us is going to be our servant, the greatest among us, he that is the greatest servant. And that was the question I asked. And I said, I wonder why, if we know to be great is to serve God, why don't we serve? And I just got my answer, our pride. That's the answer. And so as long as we're prideful, we can't be servants. So whatever we don't. And here is pride, somebody. Here's pride. Because some we we know a lot of ways we can describe pride. But here is one example of pride. I don't want to do that and make a mistake. That's pride. Who do you think you are? That you won't make any mistakes. 
if you serve, if you do anything in anything in life, you're going to make some mistakes. So why are you saying I'm not going to do that because I don't want to make a mistake? What? Your pride? What do you, what, what's going to happen when you make a mistake? Exactly. And why would you, why should you allow your pride to be hurt when you're just trying to do your best to serve? So we're in a conundrum there because we think that, well, I would serve, but, you know, and then we're worried about, you know, uh, you know, commitment and stuff like that. When all God is saying is, listen, man, I was a servant. I had to be committed because you can't be a good servant and not be committed. And so serving demands commitment. It does. And sometimes we're saying we don't want commitment. My sister-in-law bought a new car the other day and <laughs> we, I just thought it was the funniest thing. So all the way when she, she told me, you got to go with me. I got to go get my car. I said, okay, you know, I'm going to go. And so the whole time she's like, I'm nervous. I said, why are you nervous? You, you work, you have money, the car is nice. What are you nervous about? We're not going to pay a lot of money for car payment. Why are you nervous? You know why she was nervous? She has never owned a new car where she had to make car payments. She said the commitment of payments made her nervous. <laughs> she taught me something. I said, really? She said, yeah. I've never had a car payment a day in my life. Now I gotta commit to making car payments every month. So I know now, just our normal way of thinking, we don't like commitment. Commitment makes us not do things. Well, Jesus said, if you're gonna be great, and if you're gonna mimic me, imitate me, you're gonna have to serve. And serving can't be done without commitment. So I'll just leave that out there and let you ponder that. <laughs> That's a tough one. Can't dance your way through that one or out of that one, man. You gotta make commitment to serve. And so a lot of times we want to serve without commitment. I never forgot. Never forgot. Listen to this carefully. Never forgot. Back in the day. Just started going to church since Scarlet. And I told you since I've been going to church for over 20 years. I've only asked to do one thing in the church, one thing, not two things, not three things. Everything else that I've done in the church, someone came to me and asked me, would you do this? I've only asked one thing. The one thing I ask. Hold on, Wayne. No, I'm going to have to change that. I'm, I've probably lied over the years. Because I wasn't thinking. I've asked to do two things. Two things. Usher and evangelism. Because those were the two things I did in my secular life. So before I got saved, I worked in a restaurant. And so I would take people to their table. So I felt trapped in my own way of thinking. If you weren't saved and you were escorting people to their seat in the restaurant, why wouldn't you get saved in the church and escort people to their seat? So that's how I thought. So that was one thing I asked. The second thing I asked to do was to be on the evangelism team, the outreach team, going out in the community and telling people about Jesus. Why? Before I got saved, I would walk around the restaurant that I worked in and I would tell people, I'm going to get saved one day and live for Jesus and you need to get saved too. 
My mom used to be like, what is wrong with you? Why are you telling people to get saved and you're not saved? I would go around the restaurant and, and I, would, I, would, I would curse, right? <laughs> I would curse and they would say, how you going to church and you curse? I said, but one day I won't be cursing anymore and you need to get saved. So, so, so I had to ask them, can I be on the, because I was evangelizing when I wasn't even saved. So I'm like, I got this thing about telling people about God. So I was telling people about God before I was really a Christian. So I realized those are two things I have to ask. So when I asked, can I be on the evangelism team? They said to me, brother, we would love to have you on the team. Brother Tony said this. Y'all don't know Brother Tony. Some people don't know. Man, we'd love to have you on the evangelism team. But you need the Holy Ghost first. Didn't have the Holy Ghost. Man. I wouldn't stop going after the Holy Ghost. And they, what they said back in the day, I had to catch the Holy Ghost. <laughs> I would try my best to catch the Holy Ghost. You don't catch the Holy Ghost, you receive the Holy Ghost. But I was, I mean, I was every service, I need the Holy Ghost because I want to go do it. I say that to say, when you come to church and the pastor or one of the leaders of the ministry says, hey, you know, you would really be good at doing this, and I believe you will be a blessing. And, and you said, okay. And they say, and you say, well, well, okay, when I start. And they say, well, here are some, you know, requirements, some commitments. It's just a part of the deal. It's not a big deal. It's just a part of the deal. You have the commitment. You can't be a servant without a commitment. You're going to find me the servant that served any family or anything, and they couldn't be committed. That, that, it doesn't work that way. So pride needs to get out of us if we're going to be like Jesus, if we're going to mimic him. The, 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 the root nature of the serpent was pride. The nature of Satan was pride. I did a study. If you want to try it, you can go look at it. When you go in Galatians and the Bible talk about the works of the flesh, pride was not mentioned. Think about that now. The works of the flesh, pride was not mentioned. Man, I did, I started looking, I said, why wouldn't pride be mentioned? And then I got it. Because pride is not a work of the flesh. Pride is a spiritual work. It's the work of the devil. And the devil is an evil spirit. So pride is spiritual, it's not fleshly. I said, stop it, Jesus. So, so pride is so deadly, and that's why let me qualify. There is no sin that's worse than the other. But we will say pride is the worst kind of sin you want in your life because it's spiritual. And you can't see where it's coming from and how it's working. Listen, if I curse at you, I can know what I just did. If I hit you, I know what I just did. If I'm always angry, I know what I'm doing. All of those things are fleshly. And you know it. You can identify it. You can see it. But pride you normally can't see. And you don't really know you have pride when you have pride. That came from Satan. So Jesus had to teach us what humility was because pride is the deadly one. That's what the devil introduced to us. 
He was prideful. And remember how he got Adam and Eve to sin. It was through pride. Now we know lust of the eyes and all that stuff. But what he told them, he challenged them to not obey God. Again, what's your position on God? Are you going to just deal with God in a, in a nonchalant way or a disobedient way? That's prideful. So he introduced pride to Adam and Eve, how they approached God. Had God said? And so he challenged how they saw God, their, their way of uh, responding to God. And so pride comes from Satan. And when pride is in your life, you got to work to get that thing out because that is deadly and it will destroy you. Pride will destroy you. The root nature of the Savior, we said the root nature of the serpent is pride. The root nature of the Savior is humility. I don't know if you remember when Jesus got arrested, when Judas said, there he is, and he got arrested. Peter, if you read some, some other text, Peter cut the ear of one of the soldiers off that arrested him. And Jesus like, Peter, put the ear back on and fix him back up. Say, don't do that. That's humility. Because me and you know, if people are trying to arrest me for something I didn't do, yeah, Peter, matter of fact, stab him a couple of times. Because I didn't do anything. That's me and you. So Jesus always showed that he was not into this pride thing. He was always humble. And, and we need to imitate that in about Jesus. Uh, the Bible says that it, it is pride that first infested the Garden of Eden and rooted itself into humanity, making redemption needful. So pride was the thing that caused us to need redemption. Not lust. Well, lust was part of it. But pride was the thing that drove us because the devil introduced that to us. And so it was what started us and in, in, in make, make us need uh, redemption. Jesus humbled himself to where God could highly exalt him and give him a name above every other name. So here is how it worked. I've experienced it in my life. So I'm not even guessing. I'm telling you, you have to do your very best. To go as low as you can go. So that way the only place you can go is up. If you put yourself up, then you're going to be responsible to keep yourself going up. Go as low as you can go. And usually to do that, you have to be humble. Humility is to go low. Pride is you take yourself up high. And when you take yourself up high, Jesus will cut you down. But you put yourself down low, he will raise you up. Right? They talked about weddings in the Middle East, that they, they, that they had different um, seating for, you know, and even today we do that. The most important people are the closest to the bride and the groom. And so there's a scripture that talk about a man that went to um, a wedding, and when he um, went to the wedding, I'm trying to remember which way did it go, but I think he sat at a low seat. And when the, the parents of the bride and groom came and they saw him, they brought him up to a higher seat. But the Bible is trying to make the point. Just imagine if he would have just came in and because he came early. He just wanted to sit where he wanted to. And he sat where he shouldn't. How embarrassing would it be for him that he sat right here and that was only for the family. When the family come, they're going to say, excuse me, sir. I'm sorry. This is a table reserved for the family only. We need you to sit back there. That's embarrassing. 
And so that was the example the Bible gives us of always keeping yourself low. You won't embarrass yourself. Pride will get you embarrassed. And even if people don't embarrass you, God will embarrass you. So we just got to stay low. We stay low, we won't get embarrassed. God will raise us up. But if we allow ourselves to be puffed up, we are instructed to let the mind of Christ be in us. Jesus put others first. This is important. I'm getting ready to finish up here. Listen to this. Jesus put others first. People were his focused. People were his focused. And if we're imitating Christ, people ought to be your focus. Tax collectors, fishermen, harlots, lepers, religious elites were all impacted by the unselfish concern he had for others. This was truly the mind of Christ. It was an attitude that Purpose not to hoard giftings and powers inside, but to use it to bless the lives of others. Having the proper mind of Christ actualized in our lives is reflected in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. Paul's probing word says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The mind of Christ is not just thinking less of your life, it is thinking more like Christ. People try to think humility. Remember, I always teach people, you know, people think talking low means you're humble. No. Being like Christ makes you humble. He was humble. All I have to do is be like him and I will be humble. All you have to do is be like him and you will be humble. So humility comes from just being like Christ. Hmm. All right. So. If we're going to really impact people's life, when you walk into a room, instead of you walking into the room and presenting yourself like, I'm here, what's going on? That's pride. You ought to do like Jesus and show up on the scene and says, there you are. Remember when he saw Nathaniel? Remember when he rolled up on all the disciples? They didn't see him. He saw them. There you are. And so we're going to be like Jesus and function like Jesus. We need to walk into our homes. We need to walk into church, wherever we go on our jobs, and make people the central focus and not come in like, okay, I have arrived. Now let's get things going. You are in trouble when you walk in the room and you think that it's all about you walking in the room. you got to walk in the room and make it about the people that's in the room. That's what Jesus did. Mm-hmm. Dr. J.H. Jowett accurately said, ministry, I love this quote. Sister Marjorie, listen to this quote. You're the quoting person. 
think I don't know. Ministry that costs you nothing accomplishes nothing. Hmm. I love that. Ministry that costs you nothing accomplishes nothing. So if you are going to do something for God and it costs you nothing, you will have no impact. Mm-hmm. So go ahead, brother. I like that quote. That quote, Maja, is Dr. J.H. Jowett. J-O-W-E-T-T. That's his quote. To be given such a treasure of salvation, have the nature of Christ living in us and not have his role become my role in this world would be a tragic situation for any believer. Jesus is deserving of all our time and talent and our treasure and we should always be ready to give our life for his life. Because he gave his life for our life. We should be ready to sacrifice for him just as he sacrificed for us. I am going to be, well let me give you a couple more before. Because I think you might be looking at your page. Um Time is a commodity each of us shares equally. It is so easy to become distracted with modern electronic devices and busyness of the calendar. Our talent was given to us by God to be given back to him. Our talents and giftings should be wrapped up and presented back to the giver. The Holy Ghost is the treasure we have in earthen vessel. This Supreme gift must not be kept to ourselves, but stirred up in us and given out in a spirit of humility and servanthood, displaying the love of God that will bless others. In the book of Mark, it tells us, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Before Judas betrayed Jesus in the garden, Judas ministered, Jesus ministered to him with unparalleled humility and love by washing his feet. Would you wash the feet of someone you knew was going to betray you to get you killed? I don't think so. But if we're going to imitate Jesus, we have to imitate those kind of actions. What great mercy and compassion was on display in their meeting place that night. As Jesus went from disciple to disciple, he washed the feet of men who would eventually betray him, deny him, and abandon him in his greatest hour of need. Not long after the feet of Judas, not long after the feet of Judas were cleansed by the master, Judas' heart was Filled with wickedness. Quietly Judas went out from the presence of his closest friends to do what Satan had filled his heart with to do. Can I tell you this real quick from that text? Sometimes, this is heavy, God really rests this on me today as I was preparing. Listen to this, I'm almost finished here. Running three minutes over because I want to be done at 8.30. Listen to this. If you come to church... And you have something in your heart that you know is wrong that your flesh tell you you wanted to do, but your the spirit of God and the word of God has pointed out to you that's not good. 
And you come to church. Many of us have come to church like that many times. You came to church and there's something in your heart that your flesh wants you to do. But the word of God and the spirit of God says you better not. And so you have that issue within you. Well, Judas has proven to us, if we don't work that out, I don't care if it's Bible study. I don't care what it is, what kind of meeting that the church is having. If you come among the believers with that issue, you need to not leave until that issue is removed out of your heart. Because if you don't get it out of your heart, you're going to end up like Judas. You're going to destroy your life. Because that's what God intended the church and what the work he's doing on the earth to, to be for. So if you are here with something in your heart that's not right, you need to say, I can't leave here with this in my heart. Because if you can't get it settled in here, if you can't get it worked out in here, then you surely not going to get it worked out out there. So you're going to walk out of here and it's going to be even more empowered to begin to operate in your life. So my, 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 my suggestion to every one of us tonight is whenever we come to church or Bible study or to any meeting, prayer, whatever is in your heart that you know is wrong, I got to go tell that person just how I feel. And you think I just got to tell them, you got to stop here and just let God help you. So when you leave here, you will leave here free from that. If you got something in your heart that you feel like you got to go do and guess what? God understands and you'll just repent. You better not do it. Not when you come into the church. You need to give it up to God and say, God, this is in me and it's not good and I don't want to destroy my soul. Will you help me tonight to pray this out? And maybe you need to come see me and say, Pastor, can you lay hands on me so and pray because whatever is in me, you don't have to tell me your business but whatever is in in you uh, that you know it's not good and it can destroy you you need to just say I need to get this out Judas could have been delivered the master washed his feet the master ate with him and he could have just said you know everything already master not good And, and my flesh is so overwhelmed with wanting to do this if I leave here, I know, I know I'm going to do it. Can you help me, please? Can you pray for me right now, Jesus? Because if I, if I just let this thing go, it's going to crush me. And it's not hurting anybody but you. It's, it's your soul that was getting destroyed. We, we can't become embarrassed of just confronting our issues and dealing with them because we have to get free from the things that are in our life. All of us will struggle with different things that we have to deal with because that's just life in this world. But the the thing about it is, don't leave things to just have control over you and keep ruling you. Do something about it. Do something about it. And so Judas allowed that thing to stay in him, and it destroyed him. He could not get free from it once he left out of the presence of the Lord. And so when we're here and we're in the presence of the Lord, if you can't get that thing to get free from you in the presence of the Lord, you won't get it free from you any other place. And so we got to work on it. Jesus knew what was in Judas' heart and he chose to respond in compassion, love and mercy. In the following moments with his impending arrest, trial and crucifixion, only hours after Judas continued to offer in, uh, encouragement and comfort 
to his Jesus, I'm sorry, only minutes Jesus continued to offer encouragement and comfort to his faithful followers. Jesus stated, if any man love me, he will keep my words and my father will love him and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. When we embrace the mindset of a humble servant and exude his nature to the world around us, the transformative power of God will change lives. We must present ourselves to him. After all, he has done for us as bond servants for his sake. His example, Jesus' example of servanthood, love, and humility fulfilled in his ministry must be actualized in our lives. The imitation of Christ should lead to his incarnation in our lives. His role must become our role. That's what it is. We will talk Saturday. I have a class here Saturday from four to six. I said the class is supposed to be for fairly new Christians, but anybody is welcome to come. And I am going to talk.